0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Hopeful Majority. I'm your host, Manu Meal. As you know, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, we are dropping episodes in some fascinating conversations. The goal is always to have nuanced, productive conversations across lines of difference, to not advocate for idea ideologies, instead to advocate for a temperament. We're fighting outrage, building nuance, and it's the fall time. I hope you and your families are also enjoying your time. I hope you're able to get some rest Today I've got a very special guest. He's special to me personally, a dear mentor, but also I, in some ways, as I lovingly call him, the Dumbledore of politics. Today's introduction is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to go into a monologue before the interview. We're going to go right into the interview. This is going to be a little bit more like those presidential conversations with candidates because I want you to go right into the conversation the guest for today is David Gergen. Now, some of you may know David, some of you might not. Um, as David describes himself, he's, he's he's one of the most interesting uh, people that I know in our politics, somebody that has a lot of wisdom. He served in four different presidential White Houses, from Nixon to Ford to Clinton to Reagan. I can't even say those all in order. He's got so much to offer us, and I'll say admittedly beforehand That yes, he talks about his ideology. He's more on the left side. He talks about, at least today, he is. He believes a little bit more in progressive values. Um, And also, the recording's a little blurry. The audio's a little hard to hear. But the gem of advice and input that he has is, I think, especially important in today's moment. Uh, He talks about something that I think is more important than party ideology. He talks about character. He talks about virtues. He talks about the value that he sees in presidents like John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan, why out of the four presidents he worked in in the White House, he loved and believed in Ronald Reagan, uh, not necessarily from an ideological standpoint, but from the way that he led the country. And then he also talks about a current contemporary politician, Wes Moore, who's on the Democrat side. This is a conversation about national service. It's about youth. It's about leadership. He talks about age. We get into President Biden. We get into the 2024 election. And if I were you, the way that I would this conversation if I could offer just two very small pieces of, of input is one is I would look past the ideology and focus on the character and the virtues that he's pushing because I think those are virtues that we can all see and secondarily is I would see him as somebody that has nothing to gain other than to simply pass down input and advice and this is just something I would say personally about him you know there's sometimes people that you come across in your life, and especially me as somebody that's younger, that looks at mentors and somebody that comes across your life that cares about the next generation. And David has written this book, Hearts Touched with Fire. If you're on Spotify and Apple, you can't see it, but I'm holding it up. Where he's somebody that I've learned so much from. And I think we have a lot to learn from history. We've got a lot to learn from the wisdom of people that have come before us. And I hope that you take from this conversation things that might be relevant to your life. And he's got advice on resilience and change. So with all of that, I know that was a little rambly, but reason I was a little rambly was because it's just hard to introduce somebody that has had such an impact both on my life and somebody that has shaped American politics for literally decades. And with that, let's get into the conversation with David Gergen. David Gergen, welcome to the Hopeful Majority, sir.
1: <laughs> Hello, man. Good to see you. Again.
0: <laughs> it is. What? It is good to see you. Um, I was I was just going to say that you and I uh, have obviously you've been incredibly gracious with your time and I've learned a lot from you and as as I as I as I've told you affectionately I've called you before the Dumbledore of American politics and <laughs> and and I think boy we certainly need your wisdom right now.
1: Huh. Well, we we need some stability. That's also true.
0: We we need lots of stability and and David is. Uh, where I want to take this conversation first is, as I was telling you, uh, as we were getting on this conversation, we've had recently a lot of presidential candidates on, we've had political leaders, intellectuals, and given the fact that, you know, you've served in four different White Houses, you've written this book, um, uh, Hearts uh, Touch with Fire, uh, yes. which is focused on on young people. I just want to start off very broad and ask you, what is your perspective on the on where we are in American politics today? And, and what do you think is our way out of what many see as a very exhaustive doom loop?
1: Manu, as you know, we're very much on, on the front end of a, uh, marking or celebrating, and celebrating is probably the wrong word, but saluting Jack Kennedy and, and his 60th um, assassination uh, date is coming up uh, on the 22nd of November, so it's just a few days away from now. Um, and I've, as a result of that, I've been reading uh, back up on Kennedy again in this presidency and what, he, what lessons he has for leadership. Um, and it, what's, what's really stri- been striking to me is that there have been sim- there are similarities to the way we got into this mess with other presidents and including Kennedy early on. Um, and it's, it's, it's easy to, to, to make mistakes and let things pile up and have sort of cascade have a cascading effect. What's really hard and what's different is, is, is that this is just a different time in a different place where the culture is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our culture in earlier times was always we had we had huge differences, but uh, especially in the early days of the republic, there were huge differences among the players. But as historians have written, in the earlier days, uh, generally political figures, political leaders, thought that at the end of the day, after all the arguments. That they had to compose their differences, mm-hmm. and they had to sort of find a middle ground of some sort, uh, and that it it they were sometimes bloody getting there, but that was really essential in order to restore stability and, and the safety of the uh, uh, of, of the democracy. Uh, and what, what I think this time around is we just don't see the kind of restraints that we need. We don't see the kind of guardrails that we need in order to get back on track i don't think there's any obvious answer right you know now.
0: what's what's interesting david is you talk about you know getting the the train back on the tracks you yeah. you you said this really insightful thing to me once which is that all of the presidents you know, prior to Ford had served in World War II in some way. Yeah, you know, right. you'd mentioned John F. Kennedy, you'd mentioned right. uh uh this generation of of people that had been in the military, you talk about George H. W. Bush. Right. What do you think differentiated the presidents of the past from the presidents of today?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest differences is is, is, is this military service. We had uh, seven presidents starting, and a new young generation coming into power uh, in 1961, when John Kennedy became president. Um, and we had he was the first of these the military presidents, people who wore an active duty uniform. I mean, Eisenhower obviously had a huge. Um, he was a huge um, general in, in, earlier than that, but so so. But Kennedy kicked off with the young. Uh, generation of, of leaders and they were all every every single one of the first seven presidents from kennedy on through until through george hw bush all seven of those presidents wore a military uniform six of them were in the war itself uh, one jimmy carter was too young to serve he was in the naval academy as the war ended uh, but he went on to serve honorably in mm-hmm. the naval and uh, in, in the navy um, and so they, there's a code of honor that goes with being in the military. There's also a set a, a discipline. There's an expectation that this is going to be you. You belong to this community, uh, and therefore you ought to observe certain kind of standards. Um, and that 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 period of time when World War II presidents was was a, in effect, in a, in fact one of the high points of American presidency. Yeah. It was it was a good, it, was, it was very well done. And and that that generation, those those seven presidents, when what they left behind was, was a magnificent legacy, and that is uh, America was the strongest nation since the days of ancient Rome mm-hmm. in terms of, in terms of political, um, military, economic, um, and cultural influence. Um, it, we were we were a powerhouse. There, that's not true with, with that, that, that sort of period sort of came dwindling to an end and we, and we moved into the modern for, for, uh, phase. And what we now see, might just take one more second. What we now see are we've had five presidents in a row, none of whom have served in a, political, in, a, in a military uniform. Uh, there was one, uh, and give him credit for this, uh, George W. Bush uh, was in the Guard. But there's something different from about, you know, defending the great state of Texas from the state of Oklahoma is <laughs> a is the way we ought to judge our presidents, and you yeah. know, and I do I do think there's not a sense of um, collective uh, responsibility. Yeah. Uh, so in, in, today,
0: on this phrase of collective responsibility, I mean, I'm sure some people are listening to this, and I. And I know that they're not thinking, well, what what David's saying is every president should serve in the military. But I think there's a deeper message there, which is that what you're essentially saying is that these presidents had a commitment to something bigger than themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. how do you think we can inculcate that sense of service, and why do you think that's missing from the people today?
1: Uh, well, i I've become a great champion of um, along with a number of other people uh, for national service, uh, a, a pr- project that would uh, that tells people, in effect, or sets a standard for the culture, and that is uh, we tell young people coming out of high school um, that you have have a choice. You can go on to college or go on to work. But what we would like to ask of you is that somewhere along the way, when you're young, you give a year back to the country. Um, And in that year of service, you also begin to reduce your college debt uh, or erase your college debt. Uh, but you 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 live with and work with uh, people who are not like you, who didn't come up in the same with the same zip code, mm. uh, and don't come out of the elite. You got a much, you got a much better mixture, uh, and I think I think that would serve us well. I would note, I would note, people have talked about uh, national service for a long time, all the way back to Bill Buckley, the mm. conservative who argued it ought to be it ought to be um, mandatory. Everybody ought to be required to spend mm. a year, and and, and he was a conservative. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think that, that that's just not in the cards to have everybody do it on a mandatory basis, nor do I think it should be early on. But what we, we do know is that there are now some experiments going on uh, on both coasts and you're you know, you, you spend a lot of time in the West. Uh, and, you know, Gavin Newsom is a um, is a real proponent of, of uh, national service. He started small in California. Uh, but there are now as many 10,000 people in California who are covered by AmeriCorps, which mm. is one of the chief uh, components of, of national service. So on the, on the West Coast, we have a significant uh, effort underway. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, Newsom is reaching out to other governors. There are right. conversations going on with other governors about whether they might pick up some of this. Now, on the other coast, on the East Coast where I live, uh, you know, hearts are on fire again, this time for this young man named Wes Moore. Mm-hmm, who is, mm-hmm. uh, I think, one of the most promising political figures I've met in the last 25 years? Westmore. Yeah, Westmore. I, I don't know whether you, I think probably a lot of your your viewers and listeners uh, won't know anything about Westmore, which, which is fine. They will. Well, that's day. why you're here. You he will. They will <laughs> one well, I me tell you a story because I think it's one of the just, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Westmore. Okay. Um, we'll have to bring him on. Yeah, you, know, you, you, you do. I, I guarantee you, you, you will have a terrific program, uh, because he's extremely thoughtful. And um, Wes is Black. Uh, he grew up in, um, in poverty. Uh, his, his dad disappeared very early. His mom brought up, you know, was a single mom. Uh, and Wes, in his very early days, uh, was rambunctious and defiant and angry and what had happened to him in life. Uh, and he got very involved in gang kind of, kind of effort. And he, and he was in handcuffs by the age of 12. Mm. Uh, and it looked like he was going to spend his life in prison. And his, and his mom to, to sort of did a Hail Mary with him and said, you've got to go to a military academy, which he did. He went to the, he went to the Valley Forge Military Academy in Pennsylvania. Uh, and that, that changed his life. Mm. At first, he was, he was rebellious. Against it, He didn't like all the the requirements and the sense of you know you you, you belong not there's this authority you will have to listen to. He didn't like military sort of life. He tried to escape. He was brought back several times, and eventually it, he came around to it uh, just through the through his life and in a few years. And he then went on and got himself into Johns Hopkins to get an education, which is a terrific school, as you know. Uh, and at Johns Hopkins, he got a Rhodes scholarship. Right. Uh, and, and with that, he was launched. Um mm. and he, he was, went and worked some in private equity. I uh, didn't like the uh, equity, didn't like the private sector, uh, but eventually got over and became and, and got a White House fellowship, uh, which uh, which was uh, very prestigious and gave him another year. That's a grand year of, of national service uh, for somebody. Um, and eventually, he wound up, uh, being recruited by the you know, Robin Hood uh, film, uh, program in New York City, Robin Hood is the largest yeah. high poverty uh, nonprofit in the in the city, uh, and um, he was uh, he was um, hired by them to be the CEO, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ran that for like seven years, and during that time, I know I know you need to move on, but just to finish this off. Toward the end of that time, he was approached by his friends who said, you know, Wes, you really ought to run for public office. Mm. And he had never run for anything. And he said, okay, I'll give it a try. And then he went out into the Maryland primary first a couple of years ago. And in a heavy field, seven, I think there were 10 people, including former CEO of the Democratic Party. And it would look like he, I mean, he started out like 2% in the poll. And he climbed his way up. He, he climbed, climbed his way poll. up and he wound, he wound up winning He swept it by 18, 20%. And then in the general election, he swept that by 18, 20%. And now he's now he's governor. Yes.
0: Yeah, um, so, and, and,
1: and, and last sentence. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: He has two objectives that he outlined in his inaugural address. The first is to address childhood poverty because he thinks that's the link to so much else. The second, national service. Mm. He'd like to try and make that central to his administration. And he's just uh, launched a program in Maryland with the legislature uh, raising money for exactly what, exactly that is. And that is to tell high school students coming out, we'd like to develop an option for you. If you would like, you can come and join service and you do that for a year and you're gonna have all sorts of other benefits.
0: Well, you know, what's particularly powerful about that story, and I actually don't want to move off of Wes, David, because I think there's something interesting you're saying here. And obviously we have listeners from the left, the right. We've had candidates on from the left, the right. Um, But I think you're making a deeper point, which is not so much about his politics, but about his character. Could you could you could you outline and use Wes as a character for what you specifically see in somebody like him, irrespective of party? that we can learn from to assess other candidates. Because you've served four presidents, so you have an understanding of leadership.
1: Yeah, let me me just add one coda um, to what I was just saying in terms of his life, one thing that I left out that that became very important for me and very important in thinking about him as a Democrat, activist Democrat. This is a guy who volunteered and signed up with the 82nd Airborne.
0: He put it. He, he
1: was parachuting into, into, into warfare. He was a captain, and he stayed in. You know, I think he was in three years or something like that. He put his life on the line for the country, mm. and he's a pr- progressive. There's not, I don't think there's a much better combination in that. And the, and the values that, that they represent on both sides are quite important. I think there is a a real uh, sense that character matters, uh, that honesty matters, that a, a willingness and empathy for the other guy matters you, you that, if, that if we're going to be serious about getting ourselves out of this jam uh we've got to do it in a way that's going to be respectful mm-hmm. um uh you know I, I i think you and i are probably well over on the left side we've got to be willing to to um reach out and find people and find there there are elements that i think are already out there that we could we could do more together with
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I I would say uh, that I'm not necessarily politically uh, that left or right these days. Honestly, frankly, Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, David, I think most people my age are just confused (laughs) about (laughs) what's going on. I, I, I would describe myself the way that I think a lot of people describe themselves, which is just like, politically homeless and and i and i want to i want to run something by you okay so you've talked about leadership you've talked about somebody like wes is somebody that you see as a potential role model irrespective of party right Right. Uh, the question i have for you is a lot of people my age have thrown around questions around age as well and it's something that's come around president biden's candidacy and one of the most interesting things i saw from you the humility you had man when i saw you talk to a, a conference last year in New York when we first met, you talked about age and you talked about. I, I think, frankly, you just said something like, and I want you to talk about this a little bit. You said the boomers need to get off the pot, and it's time for you know the next generation to step in. Could you speak yes. to a little bit of, of that and mm-hmm. and what you think about age and the role it plays in our politics right now?
1: Well, I, I think it, I think it plays a central role in our politics right now. We have a we have a generation that by all by normal standards. Would already have started leaving the, the stage by now, uh, and there, uh, there, a lot of the members of the old generation don't want to leave. They they are clinging to power. They they are holding on to the curtains and, and, and the uh, Oval Office, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a it's apparent that I, I think if you spend listen if if you spend any time around someone in his late seventies early eighties I'm i eighty one years old, and yeah, I, 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 it would be crazy for me to try to go out and be a cabinet officer right now, or be a, a chief of staff to a, a president. I've been approached on both over time, um, and you know, because I'm 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 just not as uh, quick on my feet, but I'm, I'm just I'm a little more cautious. Um, and I think it, you you require in the in the presidency in particular a certain boldness of, and a certain vision of you know capacity for vision and lifting people up, which you need. At the same time, you can be anchored by your principles and by, and by your sense of character and honesty, you know, which, which, so you get a nice balance in life. Uh, but I, 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 we're, we're entering one of the most complex periods of time in our nation's history. That, and, and we're in a country now, in a culture that changes overnight. Mm. The things, things are evolving so quickly, you know. Uh, I mean, three three weeks, five weeks ago, who the hell would ever have imagined we'd have the kind of uh, brutal warfare that's going on now in the the Middle East? It looked like we were coming out the other direction. Things were settling down. The the Biden administration itself, you know, uh, proclaimed shortly before the warfare broke out, you know, how we were moving into this quieter period and more productive period with the Saudis and and with others in the Middle East. Um, You know, so... I, th- I think we need we need individuals who are really really dedicated and are are empathic, but also are adaptive, who know, who can adapt quickly to the changing circumstances. And I just I, my my sense is that people in their seventies and eighties have a harder time doing that. Well, I'll
0: tell you one thing, David, which is the reason why I actually wanted to bring you on. And this is what I've deeply, deeply appreciated about our relationship. You know, we've had four or five conversations and the knowledge I've took from you. And I think there's something about this intergenerational concept where you take the curiosity and energy of younger people, and you take the wisdom and experience of older folks, and it exactly. creates a very potent combination. Um, I agree totally with that. There, there was this quote that I, I mentioned to you um, to just elucidate the respect for our relationship. You know, RFK once said, a year after JFK's death in South Africa, he said, you know, youth is not a time of life, it's a stage of mind. And yes. the fact is that there's a curiosity that's required. So I've got to ask you a hard question. Sure. Um should President Biden be running in 2024?
1: Uh, I, I have enormous respect for President Biden. I think he has been a, a, a very decent president. He's a man out of decency. Um, and uh, you know I think he was better prepared to be president than almost anybody we've had in recent years. Uh, and, then that, and it's helped to work to his advantage in, on some of the domestic stuff and indeed in, on some of the foreign policy. Um, having said that, um, I don't think we should elect people based on their past. Mm. I think we should elect them based on what their potential is for the future. Um, and I, I think it's much less clear that he could that he could run a sustainable four years. And given the the the, the demands of the office, I, I, I think we would be, and, and voters are showing that they, they get this. I mean, a lot of voters out there, they understand that. You know that when you get older, things change. I mean, they or they don't always change. By the way, because I, I got just as I was turning eighty, a friend of mine said, "You you got to remember, David, that sixty is the old fifty. We all agree on that, and and seventy is the old sixty. We all agree on that, but eighty is still 80. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: 80 is still the 80 well
1: why is that uh it has something to do with our genes i think
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i think i think we just need elon musk's neural link a little bit faster and maybe it'll uh, it'll yeah. juice up folks's brains so so then so then i guess the question then becomes you know uh biden is 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 i think he's 80 right he's 81 yes right he is yeah, he's 81 he's 81 so he's he's yeah. your age Yeah,
1: yeah, And so judging from my own experience, Joe, you ought to think about it twice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So so then so then for more of a practical matter, I I, I know that a lot of the conservatives listening to the show are going to be really happy to hear. They're going to say David said Biden should think twice. I know a lot of liberal people on the show are going to say, yeah, I mean, I can see age is a real issue. That poll just came out where it showed Biden, you know, down in five different battleground states compared to President Trump. The the natural question becomes: What would your advice to the Democratic Party be? Given that's where you sort of see yourself politically, uh, given the short timeline, what's the practical implication of what you're saying?
1: Well, let me let me be very clear. I, I think it's not only Biden who would be wise to leave the stage, but cut Trump. And Trump is completely off the tr- off the tr- rails in so many different ways. And I see I see no prospect at this point of him changing, becoming becoming a really effective eighty-two year old leader. I just don't think it's gonna happen. Yeah, so you've um, got
0: this age issue on both both sides. Issue on that, and, you know, it,
1: I think it's prejudicial to say, well, one is got kind of, when they're sure. both when Biden's a little older, but nonetheless, um, you know, Trump is sometimes showing showing the behavior of a five year old. Yeah. Uh, and so whatever. Um what was your question now
0: well then the question is is what would what would your advice be to the democratic mm-hmm. party what's the practical advice implication of your right. input
1: i well i think that they i think there was a real chance they were going to get this done before the events of a few days ago with the with the new elections the, 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 that gives the the elections and how the abortion issue played out how people showed how many, how many voters in red states and you know look like a place like Kentucky a really really good governor Andy Bashir was was elected there but he's a he's a he's a blue guy in a red state um, and there are not many people that can do that that kind of thing well um, and, and I, I think he's one of them but but my advice would be if you're in the Democratic Party right now is to keep the window open for nominating somebody other than Joe Biden. and the very least what you want is a uh, and and I, and I think very, very importantly now, uh, that in effect, uh, people ought to know when they when they p- nominate Biden that in, when they nominate the successor, that that person is going to become President of the United States. The chances are very very high. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I, I, the thing that's comparable to me and it's, I don't want to go too far in this analogy, but I remember so well, uh, when when nixon was 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 president, and Agnew um, was was they were talking to Agnew. And what it became apparent was as Agnew was being selected as vice president, that then in fact, Nixon was chosen a president. And that's what the Democratic Party told Nixon, you need to go with somebody that we can trust, and that's 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 how Jerry Ford came onto the to the grounds.
0: Uh, right,
1: right, right. So, so I don't see at this point it's very difficult for any other democratic candidate to wage a campaign because it sounds like you're undercutting your own party you know so that a, yeah. that a gavin him or a whitmer or you know maybe even a westmore um th- these people are unable to communicate um, because it looks like they're gonna they're they're they're, they're throwing over they're, they're traitors to the cause uh that's why it, i think the real burden is on Burden burden is on on Biden himself and on Trump to create to be-
0: that to create that pathway yeah. and yeah. and I had yeah. I had a I had Vivek Ramaswamy on a couple of weeks ago and yeah. um, even on the Republican side it's the same argument you know when we're recording this the GOP debate was just yesterday night and it almost feels like a silver medal contest you know and yes. and there's no real pathway I've got one last uh, question then around. Experience and age for you. You know, a lot of people in my generation have thrown around the idea of term limits um, on members of Congress, uh, uh, especially around, you know, the unfortunate passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein. We see this with somebody like Chuck Grassley. You know, we've got somebody like Senator Mitch McConnell. And to a younger person, it seems like, you know, folks are holding on to power for what might seem like too long. Do you have thoughts around things like term limits or ways to potentially balance that?
1: Well, it's a good question. I, historically, I have been against term limits because it, it seems to me they're anti-democratic, and okay. the, the country should be allowed to choose. You know, have have a full choice. Um, on the other hand, I, I also think if people are going to um, clog up the system, in effect, and so that so many uh, of the younger generation can't even get on get into a national campaign until they're fifty years old or they're older. Um, then I, you know, it, it, and I, especially the Supreme Court, uh, it does seem to me that there is a. What we know is, it, is, is the culture people get into when they're young, they, they have one set of values. and they, they, they turn older, they tend to be more conservative values. But I think the Supreme Court is a, a clear example of where we've been better off had, had there been term limits. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I want to now shift this conversation, the remaining 10 minutes we've got. To something sure. totally different from politics, which is your okay. life, uh, which is what I what I fi- find find uh, both inspiring and something I know that you don't like to talk too much about. But I want to I want to I want to mention the fact that, for example, you served in the Navy. You served in four different White House administrations. I was just talking to my friend and producer about different questions to ask you, and one of the questions that immediately comes to mind is: you had four different administrations. Did you have a favorite? And, and I'm not and I know how difficult that question is because I'm, I know the jobs were very different the administrations were very different but was there a particular president or an administration that you particularly appreciated uh, working for
1: well let me just say that I got into into politics in, in North Carolina my home state uh, and that was in the late 50s early 60s uh, and I got very involved in civil rights there you know which was a a as you know, contentious issue of the the time. And as a result of that, I was in in civil rights. I got got to know and work for someone named Terry Sanford, who was our young Jack Kennedy. He was governor of the state. Um, And in my time working with him and for his administration, frankly, was the, the most satisfying of any political job I've had. Because it was really it was at the state level, and you could see the people, you could talk to people. It wasn't all sort of done, you know, remotely through um, social media or anything like that. It was really, really honest to God, and I and, and we we had a measure of, um, of peace and and under Terry, um, and progress that made a big difference. It was so, so called New South, um, and. I've had presidents sense that I'm I've been honored. Well,
0: th- to- actually, actually, there's something I want to hold on there that you just said. You went to my question where about presidents, and you talked about a local state office, right, or a governor. Yes. And one of the things we often hear is the power of local politics, right? Yes. When given how national everything is, could you speak a little bit to why you think it's important to do local? Um, sure,
1: you know? I, I, I I think it's really vital. Uh, that people spend some time at the local level because that's where the real action is these days. With so much uh, paralysis um, yeah, in, in Washington, uh, I, I tell young people, I used to tell young people, uh, go to Washington spend two or three years really of, get to know how the country works. Well, I don't tell people that anymore. I right. said, if, if you've got a particularly special job, you have a chance to work for somebody who's really special or you have a chance to work on an issue that's really special to you, such as climate or such as race or poverty and all the other issues, diversity and the issues we think about. Um, but I do think that it, um, it, it, it helps you a lot to get grounded in the, in the values and how people not like you, people who run for office tend to you know, have fancy degrees. Uh, and at some level, you, you've got to get beyond your fancy degrees to sort of how do, how do regular folks live? Mm-hmm. Well, how do they think about it? How, how, how is life if you're you know, in a working class life situation and you got a lot of promise, but you got all these bills that pile up? Uh, and then and then you feel your whole generation is being threatened by by the dumb, stupid dancers that are coming out of Washington. Uh-huh. You know, so what do you think? Get, get in there and get it. The important thing, Mano, is get in the arena. As Teddy Roosevelt, you know, used to say, "The man in the arena speech." You know, there's, it's not it's not the it's not the spectator on the sidelines who matters. It's the person who's in the arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I and I encourage people to do that. Go spend a year or two. There's a big piece in the Wall Street Journal these last few days about what's going on in corporate America. And the, and the thrust of the piece is that. As employers are looking for um, new employees, they're they're finding more and more that people who have been veterans, military veterans, tend to make good employees. They tend to make mm. better employees. They don't whine, you know. They they get down to work. <laughs> they got to get stuff done. They, they got gotta get. Stuff
0: they got bigger things to worry about, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh-huh.
1: So not to, so. I don't. I'm not just plugging the uh, military service. I also think just getting out there and working. Yeah. Do something. Yeah, do something. Get in the hospital situation. Be a first responder. On, you know, when uh, with the storms. That's why you know, a, a President um, Biden just started a, a conservation corps um, as a form of service. And I, I think it's really, really important to know how other people live. I went to two prestigious schools coming out, as I think you know. One, I went to Yale as an undergraduate, and I loved it there. And then I went to the Harvard Law School. So I worked in these two sort of ivory tower things. And then I got in the Navy and started working with guys who barely finished the 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And it was such a difference. But it really helped me understand, get with the real world, you know, get and understand these folks. That's the why you're going to make a difference. You can be you can speak for and you give voice for. I mean, that's what Gandhi, let's take it on the largest frame. What was Gandhi all about? How did he launch his career? You know, he, he went to South Africa as a lawyer and thought he was going to be a lawyer, And then, you know, and then he was discriminated against in South Africa, which really pissed him off. But he basically re- rebelled and went, was called back to India. And what did he do when he got back to India? He didn't give a speech. He didn't go out and talk to people. He didn't go out and tell people what to do and how to do it. He went around the country asking questions and and sleeping third third and fourth class cars um you know uh and he listened to the voices of the people of india and then a year into that he started talking himself he started urging people to move forward he paid his dues he thought about it you know and he and he understood and he understood and one of the one of the things i think we haven't even really done dealt with manu is I think women in America are listening better than the men are, and I think they're paying attention to what's needed better than men are. And what we start to find right now is that a lot of women are moving into leadership roles, which I think is terrific. But we should have a concern that something is not something is not right among younger men right now, especially black men. It's 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 tough being a black man in this country right now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we we need to be focusing on. What are we going to, the older generation of which I'm a part, I'll be doing all we can to help people prepare for leadership of the country. Yeah. You know,
0: I realize I, I, I let you off the hook about who your favorite president was amongst the four that okay. you served, But, yeah, I think, well, I'll, but
1: I, I'll just straight up. I wasn't as conservative as he, as he was, but I look back now with a lot of nostalgia for Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I just think he's he looks better with time. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think that because some of the presidents we've seen since then just don't match up. You know, they haven't they they look they look like they're gonna be shiny new models and it didn't quite work out that way.
0: Well, I want to go back to actually the seriousness of of your answer, which is thinking through the importance of service and thinking about being the person in the arena. There's two last questions I have for you. One is about resilience, and the second one is about change. Okay. And I was just thinking about this as you were talking, which is I have a very I I haven't been doing this work for that long, but it is hard. It's hard to sustain. It is it is it requires a lot of barbs and arrows. Uh, one thing I've noticed with with anything public is that you're almost guaranteed to piss somebody off someday, yep. almost every day. Yep. What is your advice to somebody pursuing a career in service or in public office, whether it's a presidential candidate currently or somebody young? about staying resilient?
1: Well, let me just... I, I should ask a, a coda again. I, I would also say that Bill Clinton was... Uh, we, we had a very nice relationship. I enjoyed those. For the record,
0: of, President Clinton, Mr. Gergen said he still has a good relationship with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he, this is a very, very beautiful letter for me when I was... Reti- as I moved toward retirement here at the, uh, at, the uh, at the Kennedy School. Um, listen, I, I think... I, I, th- I think more and more we ought to um, appreciate the importance of studying uh, the classics um, and, and being schooled in history uh, and understanding how often there are similarities, parallels, but uh, appreciating the differences as well. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a growing concern to me, at least. I'm sure not, not to necessarily others, but I, it's a growing concern the humanities departments are being downgraded in universities, and there's less emphasis, much more emphasis on STEM uh, uh, teaching and research. And there's there's no question STEM is really quite important, but that doesn't diminish the importance of the humanities. And in appreciation uh, right now, I I now have more more time to read, and I've been reading about the Stoics. Right. You know, right. I didn't understand much about Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or people like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and meditations. To, yeah, meditations. Um, I've been found it's really, very really interesting. One day, I'll tell you a quick story. I was I was traveling with President Clinton. I was working for him at that time on Air Force One. And we got onto the plane in front of the plane there and when he was walking back through the aisle. and came across Ted Koppel of ABC News and, um, and Koppel was deep into a book. And Clinton said, couple what are you reading, ted And he said, "I'm reading um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius." And, and Clinton said, "You are." She said, Clinton said, I, "I love that book. I read. I read it every year. I read it anew." Mm. And couple said, "So do I." So do I. <laughs> uh, and, and they were two of the wiser people in their generations.
0: Yeah. Yeah you know uh it's 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 fascinating and this is one of many stories that you've told me and what what i'm sure somebody that's listening to this can appreciate is whether or not they agree with your politics whether or not they agree with the folks you like you know the fact is you're talking about character right whether it's reagan clinton you're talking about right. service these things right. exist above our politics and right. my my last question for you is about change yes. you know you're somebody that's that spanned generations administrations you've seen so much rapid technological change and our society way long after we're gone is going to continue going through change and change is only getting more rapid right what's your advice to people on adapting to change because change can be very scary and i think it produces calls for a lot of dark politics how do what's your advice on dealing and adapting to change
1: well, among other things, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say he's a role model, but I would I would argue that people ought to go back and read Machiavelli. Five hundred years ago, he was arguing changes very very hard, mm-hmm. uh, and that is because if there are some people who live very very well uh, with a system, that other people, you know, and that treats other people horribly. Uh, but but the, but the, you want to help these people who, and they normally the ones who are getting hurt would normally rally against this existing um, uh, situation. Uh, but the, but the, the truth is that people who are, are suffering from the loss, lack of change, they're scared themselves of changing because it may get worse. And so we have right now a situation where the country is sort of stuck um, in, in leadership situations where we're not quite sure where to go and we don't know who to look to. Hmm. Oh, I have a question before we leave to you.
0: Yeah.
1: Or in your desk, you've got all these books filed up. It looks like the books about presidents, got, <laughs> as well as political leaders. You've got King and you've got Grant, as well as Jefferson. Uh, but between the, the King and the Grant book, Martin Luther King and Ulysses S. Grant, which is a better book and which was who was a better leader?
0: I appreciate that question for everybody listening that can't watch this, I've got a stack of books, and as people know, this is a very small stack of many other books I've got. Um uh, I'll answer the question the way you would answer a question, which is rather than giving you the simple one is better the other. um there's 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 value in both. With Grant, you know what was so interesting, David, that I learned? And the reason why I wanted to read that book was because Grant was actually a very normal person who was overlooked throughout his career uh-huh. and and went from being somebody that was a severe alcoholic. To suddenly the head of the Union Army in over five years. And 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 he is an example to me of somebody that demonstrates that service is not meant for somebody that is just going to the best schools or somebody that is that looks the best or seems the most promising. That it's for everybody. And everybody has the opportunity. It's about whether or not you're willing to take it. And yep. what's so interesting about Dr. King, what I liked about his book, and I actually had on Jonathan I, who who wrote this book, and it's the most recent biography of King is King understood human nature better than I think most people do. I, I and, agree. And, and what I mean by human nature is that he understood that humans are arrogant, humans are selfish, humans also yeah. have a capacity to love. Yeah. And you can't create change without speaking to both the darker angels of human nature and the better angels.
1: Totally, totally agree. And, so I like you know, them both. One of, you know, one of the best quotes from King is it. You don't have to be rich to serve. All of yep. us can serve. It was—it's a really good statement on his part. Uh, and, well, and so much. I—I—I—I'm in the midst of reading the King book now. I haven't touched Grant, but i i, I got to Churchill before, and I got way by Churchill. Churchill. Yeah.
0: Andrew. Andrew Roberts. Have you read Andrew his? Roberts?
1: Yes, oh. Andrew Roberts. Uh, Eight hundred pages. And, and uh, Eight hundred yeah, pages, and I, lear- and I
0: learned. And I learned. You talking to him?
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, talk yeah. Talked to him, and he's got he's got a uh, the uh, new film that's coming out called Napoleon.
0: Yes, which is yes. just
1: coming out by around Thanksgiving. Uh, he, Andrew Roberts was uh, that's built uh, that's created based on Andrew Roberts' book about Napoleon. It is,
0: and I have Napoleon's book as well. You should tell Andrew to join the show. I I, I learned I, will. Uh, I I you know um, uh, the other thing I learned from the Churchill book. I know you got to run soon, but the other thing I learned from the Churchill book is. Not only that he was an interesting and good leader, meant for his time, but do you know how many cigars he consumed by the end of his life? Eight
1: eight hundred ninety six thousand. <laughs> I you know I, as I read the story, he did have a, a cigarette or a, a cigar in his mouth almost the whole time. He did, but he didn't have to smoke it.
0: No, no, he he huffed it like he was drinking. Well, he 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 woke up with a with brandy. He yeah. in the afternoon he had a glass of wine. And yeah. for dinner, he had some more brandy, and throughout yeah. the entire experience, he had a cigar.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he lived to ninety-five.
1: He was he was one of the most remarkable figures in, in history. I, what an I, in, in indomitable you, spirit! Yeah the, the the Robert's book and Andrew Roberts is one of the better writers that I've seen too. I'm really I'm really pleased about that.
0: Well, la- la- last last thing I've I've got for you because this is making me a little sentimental. Think about legacy and and the future you know, uh, again, I've, I've learned a lot from our relationship. I don't take it for granted. And I hope people took away something nuggets of wisdom from this conversation. Uh-huh. I, I wasn't going to ask you this question, but there's a question that I actually ask everybody before, before they leave. It's the last question on every episode and yeah. it's asked to everyone. And the show is called the hopeful majority. And the idea behind the hopeful majority, the hope is that I think to get oh, hope, you have to have a really good answer to the question. Why, why do you do what you do? Um, why do you you know the deep deep sort of purpose that gives us the ability to put one foot ahead of the other especially in times of tragedy and so i want to ask you this question of why um why do you do and have lived the life of service that you've given to this country
1: well i i, I listen i feel very grateful for the life i've had and you know i've been treated very well by the world and by my by my friends in particular um I, I find it increasingly a sense of calling, you know. I'm, and and it's a lot easier, frankly, to decide what you don't want to do than decide what you do want to do. And I tried a number of things early on in life, and m- many of which didn't. I didn't really like. I mean, I went on. To, I went to Wall Street and stayed there for a short while, and I said, I don't think so. Hmm. So I, th- I, th- I do think, and that's why I hearts touched with fire. You know, it's, it's, um, people who fought that, that the title of that, uh, my, my book, I Howard Stuck with Fire, uh, you know, comes from, uh, awesome. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was a, um, pro- came from a prominent family in Boston, was at Harvard, um, as an undergraduate when Lincoln issued a call, uh, for, for volunteers to, to go, it was the first call to for volunteers in the Civil War, and Oliver Wendell Holmes could have sold his, his ticket, which is what many people did, including his father, had done. Uh, but he, he decided to volunteer. Hmm. Uh, and he was in the war itself. He was wounded grievously on three occasions and left for, left for dead the last time out. So it looked like he'd never make it. But miraculously, he survived. And 20 years after the war was over, the Civil War was over, he gave a talk on Memorial Day and talked about what his generation had been through earlier. And he said, you know, that people came through the Civil War. They were, they were. It was a blessing in many ways that that, that their hearts were that their were touched with fire. Hmm. Experience of the war. I want to go. I want to tell you one last. Tell you one last thing. We cannot leave this without recognizing that many of these leaders also had a sense of humor, mm-hmm. uh, and I found that from from Reagan to Clinton. But th- th- I, I love Roosevelt on that. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Churchill on that. There was a, this story that I, I, I enjoyed. A, a George Bernard Shaw had a play that he had, had produced and he sent, a, he sent a note to Churchill saying, here are two, two, two tickets um, to, to my play for you uh, and to bring a friend uh, if you have one. And, and Churchill wrote back, George, um, I will try to get to your the second night of your play if there is one,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know the 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 other humor story that that uh, I remember you telling me was the one with um, John F. Kennedy and cigars. Oh uh, yes, yes. <laughs> you, want, you want to? Could you close us off with telling that story too?
1: Well, Not I funny. I'll, I'll, I'll shorten it some. some. When um, Kennedy was president, he had a uh, you know his, his chief, his top press officer. Um, uh was a very, very funny guy, an interesting person named I mean, Peter Salinger. Um, and Salinger, after uh, Kennedy died and Salinger uh, started going around the country giving lectures. And I happened to be with him on a number of occasions. we, we went, were on the same stage together talking about things. And he loved to tell the story that, as press secretary that he was in his, in his office right off the Oval Office. At eleven o'clock one morning the phone rang. It was it was the president saying, Pierre, come in here, I need to talk to you. So Salinger goes into the into the Oval Office and there's the president alone. And 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 um, the president said, Pierre, I know you're good you're you're a good you're a good man, and I need a favor. And what's that, Mr. President? Well, Pierre, I need you to get me some of Havana's finest cigars. Mr. President, you know, those cigars are really hard to come by these days. I I just don't see how I can do that, Pierre. You're a good man. I know you can get it done. See you later. Next morning, 11 o'clock, Phone rings. Pierre, come in here and talk to me. Walks in. Pierre, you got those cigars? Yes, sir, Mr. President. I've got all 1,000. I've got 1,000, and they're right here. I know you're a good man, Pierre. Noon sharp. Kennedy goes on national television. To declare a trade embargo against Cuba.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's 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 true. You know, humor gives you a sense of uh, putting everything into perspective. Um, exactly. David, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Uh, I always learn a lot from our conversations, and I appreciate you taking the time. I,
1: I enjoy it, and I'm I'm really glad you've joined the or you're in the arena. Stay there. We need you to do that.
0: Thank you, sir. I appreciate you.
1: Okay, you take good care.
0: Well, thank you so much to David for coming on to that conversation. I know that the audio is a little tough and the video is a little tough, but I know the ideas were there. And that's what matters is it's ideas and virtue and character over party. This conversation was something that spanned, I think, politicians and Joe Biden and spanned people like Ronald Reagan. And it touched on the current moment we're in today. And we talk about polarization and how young people get, and get involved. I hope you took something from that conversation. Remember, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, we come at you. Remember, if you're on Spotify and Apple, review the podcast. If you're on YouTube, leave a like, subscribe. We're building this majority together because, as David said, there's a hopeful majority of people out there that believe in a better temperament and believe in a better tomorrow. So let's build that together. I'll see you next week.